Hello and welcome to this not so common podcast with Pat Contry. That's me. And my guest this week is Norman Caruso, also known online as the gaming historian. Norm's been around for years and years doing very well produced, highly edited uh, edutainment videos about video game history. Welcome, Norm. Hey, Pat. Thanks for uh, having me on your new podcast. Yes. How many podcasts should I have, Norm? Should I have like. <laughs> Seven, you know, just change it to a podcast channel. Hey, it's, hey it's, it's, if, if people it, listen, keep making them. Is is that where we're moving now uh, in terms of YouTube? You basically just try to find your way and sort of settle on what works for, for you. It's settling on doing, you know, Ken Burns-style mini-documentaries on video game history topics. That's sort of the niche you've uh, you found yourself in. How have you gotten there? What was the journey there? Um, it's It's been... Let's see, I started in early 2008, so nine years. It's been nine so years about, about of the making same videos. About, about the same time as me, about. Yeah, I, I think you, I remember seeing your videos when I first started. I said, who's this oh, was that? Was I an inspiration for Norm? You're like, I could do, <laughs> I could do better than this asshole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it, was, it was nothing like that. It was... Uh, there, I mean, there's a bunch of people that are still around today, like uh, Pixel Dan. I mean, me Our and him pal were kind of Dan. in the yeah in the trenches of Screw Attack. Uh, <laughs> gosh, who else? Angry video game nerd, but I mean, he's been he was like the OG, you know, YouTuber. So. Who wait first off? Who who wasn't in the Screw Attack trenches at one point or another? Like it seems like almost all of us were at some point in time either loosely associated or at least posting our content on that site. It was you know one of the first sort of. Uh, nerd culture gaming conglomerates that that sort of popped up uh you know about yeah, 2006 early 2007 we, we we all sort of threw our content on there for a while before youtube got big that's true that was back when uh back when websites were a thing for videos anyway <laughs> <laughs> i mean because i mean if i were youtube you couldn't monetize back then i think it was no. just videos or only like a, a very select few could monetize very very finite number of partners they would let in. Yeah. Um, that that was always sort of the sticking point with some people. It was like, wow, why did this person get monetized? You know, why yeah. why did why does the irate gamer monetize and James isn't? You know, that was always people were asking that, and and rightfully so. For a lot of years, it was very it was very tough to get like on the front page if you got partnered. Remember, you could put your own banner up. You got all these little special perks. Remember, and yes, yeah. you can make you can make money at the time. Yeah. Which is funny because now, but uh, I mean, I guess when I first started, I wasn't even thinking about monetizing because I was in college, and I was just—it was just something fun to do. Um, I mean, I don't think I started monetizing my videos until like three or four years later. It was a and while. And what did you go to college for? History. History. What was your favorite yeah. favorite time period for history? Do you have a certain time period you enjoy? Um. I well, growing up, I always had a fascination with World War II, but that was kind of popular in pop culture at the time, with video games and movies and TV shows. So, like Big yeah. Brothers and Saving Big Private Brothers. Ryan, and the History Channel at that point was basically you know a Nazi Germany World War II channel. At the yeah, time. It, like, it was the Hitler channel. <laughs> it was the Hitler it. channel. Uh, but. Uh, when I got to college, I took a huge interest in the Civil War, uh, pre-Civil War and post-Civil War, because I went to Elizabeth City State, which is a historically black college. 
So that's what they focused on a lot was, um, you know, slavery pre-Civil War, the Civil War, and then uh, Reconstruction after the Civil War. So kind of took a liking to that and uh, studied a lot of a lot about Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln. So, oh, Andrew Jackson was just uh, talk about OG, right? He was just bad. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he he walked the walk. Isn't the one that he beat the hell out of a guy trying to assassinate him? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he I, just like uh, when when you know after the Battle of New Orleans, he like like took over the town with his army, and a judge was like, "You can't do that." And then he, uh, Andrew Jackson did habeas corpus and would just like overruled him, and he just shut down the Constitution, basically. They, yeah, I mean, he he ignored the Supreme Court with the Trail of Tears and Native Americans. He was. He was he kind of do what he wanted to do, you know. But he was the first kind of like people's president. He he was know? the Trump of his time, is what you're saying. <laughs> kind of, and actually, when when they were comparing him to Andrew Jackson uh, on the news after the election, I was like, I guess I can see that populist sort of uh, you know of the people. Yes, you know? I mean he Except- he was dirt poor growing up. I mean Trump wasn't dirt poor, but like. Uh, he connected with the people. He, I mean, I mean, Jackson wasn't right. obviously he was a mil- military guy. Uh, was he? He he did a lot in the War of eighteen twelve, I believe, as well. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, the Battle of New Orleans was his claim oh, to sure. fame. But I mean, even during the Revolutionary War, he was a, a sp- he was thirteen years old and he was helping the the arm the Revolutionary Army. But wow, um, yeah. But he, like I said, he was dirt poor growing up. He. I think he lo- he lost both of his parents really early on, but he but he practiced law. He studied law on his own. He served like one term in the house, and I think he got bored with it, so he left. He like didn't like politics, so it's surprising <laughs> he got back into it as a president. I don't. And honestly, you think about if he actually wanted to be president, because you know he he's tired of the you know the warring factions in politics. Sure. You know, that's maybe that's why he was like, I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> we didn't learn too much about Andrew Jackson. I mean, I mean, I learned U.S. history, you know, in high school. You have basically one year of learning uh, from, you know, the early 1700s up to like the Civil War and Reconstruction. And then like, you have another course where you basically learn, you know, from Reconstruction to like World War Two. You know, usually yeah. it's divided up somewhat like that for the most part. About a hundred and twenty five years, hundred and fifty years each, something like that. Yeah. Two hundred years and hundred and fifty. But uh my father was heavily into the Civil War. I mean, he dragged us to freaking Gettysburg uh <laughs> you know, one time and then um he, like all his vacations were like just for him in terms of where we would go. Like, if we went to Virginia, you'd have to see... Uh, I think we went to Frederick Fredericksburg once just to look at, oh, it's just a dirt field now. You know, uh, just, just stuff like that where he, he was always into stuff that he wanted to do. Uh, he was also into, you know, uh, Revolutionary War stuff. He'd go to, um, what was it, New Jersey? Uh, uh, Jockey Hollow. They'd have, like, reenactments every freaking every other Sunday. We'd go out and see that, you know, and then if we went to... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, historical Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. So, yeah. we, Colonial, so like, Colonial just, Williamsburg. Yeah, just stuff like that where it's like, I guess if I, I could probably appreciate it better now, but when you're like eight years old, you're really like, oh, why can't I just go to Bush Gardens, a theme park right there? You know, I can't <laughs> go to the amusement park. Yeah, you I was going to go to this. Uh, Williamsburg is owned by Anheuser Busch, so it's like uh, the, they own the amusement park and the uh, historical Colonial Williamsburg. 
It's kind of strange. Oh, I didn't know they own both. They have both going on. Yeah. Oh, I had yeah, no they, idea. So there's like Budweiser ads around Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> you go into an old tavern, they're selling their, hey, you want a Bud Light? You know, yeah, you, you can get Budweiser at those old taverns. I remember I, I remember it because it was like on like just an awful heat. It was probably like 98 degrees the whole week. And you walk into these buildings, they didn't have air conditioning or central air. So you no. were just dying inside these old wooden like just constructions with just like uh, humid dusty air it was just terrible we're just like can we please go to the water park just like one day <laughs> yeah uh you know. well one thing about colonial williamsburg that's kind of disappointing is a lot of the original structures aren't there anymore so a lot of them are just reconstructed like here's what it would have looked like back in the 1600s i think they have like one or two original buildings and you can't go in them because i think if you touched it it would fall over but <laughs> you yeah. just breathe on it. It's like the three little pigs. Yeah. So, so when you were in college, did you also have a love for retro games back then for older games or was it just modern stuff at the time? I, I loved all video games. Um, and I kind of, kind of got into collecting a lot because I had a part-time job at GameStop. So people would bring in a bunch of retro games all the time and want to trade them in. And at that time, GameStop didn't take those games. So so you were in that period right after they stopped selling them in the early 2000s until about a couple of years ago when they started selling, selling them again. Yeah. And a lot of times they would just give, the, give us the games, like, oh, you can just have them. I don't want them. Uh, but other times I would say, hey, meet me after work and we'll make a deal in the parking lot. Catch me outside. So, catch me outside. <laughs> exactly. For some retro games. Yeah. So what so what were some of the, the good ones you got at the time? Because I was I remember I applied for to Funko Land in my teens and didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. And that would be my dream job at the time, because that's when I started, you know, collecting games, getting in my late teens, like you know, late nineties. But just tell me some of your experiences. Now I'm curious about some of the finds you got. It's it's funny, um, Everyone wants the job at the game store, like it's the dream job. But I can tell you, working at GameStop, it's one of the worst companies I've ever worked for. At the time, you mean, or now? At the time, it was it bad? At the time, it was bad, and I think it's still bad. But (laughs) was there there a circle of life type of uh, requirement? You had to hit certain goals as a part timer. They judged you on magazine subscriptions and uh, pre orders, so you had to hit those numbers. Um, the magazine subscription wasn't super hard because you got a 10% discount on used games. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people would buy like $200 worth of used games. And basically you can just say, well, you're, you, you'd you save money today if you subscribe to this magazine. So basically they get it for free. They come out ahead. Yeah, exactly. So I, I did fine in that, but they pushed that really hard. As far as like cool games i found i got a lot of ps1 games working there like a ton of ps1 games because i get that was just kind of the right period of time where ps2 was still going strong the ps3 was about to come out so everyone was just dumping ps1 stuff were you still like having people come in trading in like n64 super nintendo games and nes games at that every, point every now and then yeah but a lot of playstation 1 i think that was just the time period. So you have a lot of like the coveted PS1 games. Is that what you're saying? I used to. <laughs> I used to. Uh, I I sold my collection when I moved, but yeah, I had quite a lot of PS1 games back then. Let's let's talk about that. I remember when you 
you started, uh, you even kind of made a public announcement. You were paring down your game collection. Yep. Which I thought was interesting, being that you know your moniker is gaming historian, and you like to, you know, <laughs> follow the history. So I don't see the disconnect, but some people would, would would take the stance of, well, if you're a gaming historian, shouldn't you have all these games for reference? Or to have them, or what, so. What's what's your philosophy on that? How, do you you feel like you still have this connection to game history without needing to have a gigantic collection? Sure, um, it, I have found a good balance. I guess is the right word. I have not because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard you just got a storage unit. Is that for ex- extra I did. video games? <laughs> uh, games, but toy stuff's gonna go in there. And I honestly, I'm, I might just give it away as a Patreon perk. I swear to God, we're like. You follow me on Patreon every uh, every month. I'll I'll send out a few boxes of crap because I don't have the time to sell the stuff. Yeah, you know I don't have time for <laughs> eBay. It's not worth it. But anyway, you could do like your way. own your own loot crate. I can do my own do game like a pack wheel. Crate. Yeah. <laughs> I can do a pack. <laughs> do, do a raffle. <laughs> you game. <Do> a raffle. <laughs> I don't know. The state might come down on you for that. Racketeering um, charges. Yeah, I'm. Tr- I'm thinking. I mean, I owned a lot of... This is when I was living in North Carolina. I owned a lot of games. And you live where now? I live in Kansas City, Missouri now, um, which is where my wife's family's from. And when we moved, we could basically only fit what was... what could We could only take what could fit in our car. No (laughs) U-Haul. No. um, We just looked at the price, and we just... I just made the decision, you know... I'm going to sell it all, and if I want to get it back again, I will. And that's what I did. I sold everything except, like, maybe 20 games. And, well, and So when you when you came to that realization, was it difficult? Were you like, oh, it's like a PCU you were gone? You're like, you know what? I can live on without this stuff. Well, what's funny, it was hard at first, but as I, as I kept making money, like the amount of money I was making selling these games, and this was back in 2000. 10 or 11 before the before the prices shot up before the prices went nuts but i was making good money even back then and i paid off all my debt you know i had a nice chunk of savings like felt good so (laughs) i don't regret it at all uh now i'm just thinking about if i sold it now how much i would make probably a lot more (laughs) but probably double (laughs) yeah but i i have a pretty sizable collection again um i just as far as like collecting, I think I'm more particular about what I collect now. Like, I'm not just if I if I see a game, I'm not just going to buy it. Uh, as far as like for research, usually in my research, if I stumble across something interesting that I need to check out, I'll buy it and then I'll, it'll be part of my collection. So, for instance, I'm researching Super Mario RPG. Part of that means I'm going to buy the Super Mario RPG complete in box with the strategy guide. So, like, I kind of get everything i need that was officially released for that game and now it's part of my collection on, you put on your little rotating thing that pixel dan told us about yeah the, I, <laughs> I i finally learned the name of those things it's called a lazy susan it's what, called well, a, wait, hold on a lazy susan is technically what you put in your dining room and it's just you can use your hand to yeah that's yeah. what that's what i thought but looking if you look on Amazon and eBay, if you type in Lazy Susan, you'll see That's auto- what comes up. Like automatic Lazy Susan battery powered. Yeah. All right. I guess people put forks in and salt and pepper on them as well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I, I haven't used that I haven't busted that thing out in a while. I, I use it 
I used it for the uh, NES Classic Edition review. It was the first time I got to use it. I had to find it. I'm like, you know what? Dan told me about this thing like two years ago. I got to use this stupid thing finally. Yeah. You know, They're big these... in toy reviews. Oh, well, Dan's, Dan's one of the big guys when it comes to that. He is. For sure. It's it's, so, so, it's so funny talking to him, seeing like what's popular in toys. Because, you know, we, we kind of get an idea of like video games, what's popular on YouTube. But for toys... Dan stumbles across like uh, slime. Slime is like super popular in toys, which is funny because it was popular tw- you know twenty years ago. You know, like you can buy Nickelodeon slime. It came with some toys. Came with the Venom Marvel figure I had. You know what? But but I remember they stopped selling that one. They, they originally came with this black ooze that could like stain your carpet, and then they <laughs> changed it. They changed it out for just for like a plastic. Basically, the it, the goo shot through Venom's chest, but then they sw- swapped it out for a holder that you put water in. So, so people would spray water instead of the goo. Probably parents complained about that. Maybe, maybe it was toxic. I don't know. But yeah, they used to sell Ninja Turtles uh, ooze yep. in, in the early '90s. You could buy that crap. I wonder what it looks like yep. now. I wonder if, if you if you opened up a fresh can now, what it would look like, oh. or if it's just all solidified. I wonder what it smell like. God. So when you originally started posting videos on YouTube, I'm guessing you, you thought it was just for a hobby. You wanted to mix your love of obviously history and, and your video game passion. Funny enough, I originally started with uh, comedy videos, video game oh, comedy I gotta go videos. Back. I got to go back and look. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they don't exist on YouTube anymore. Uh, but that bad? <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I think they're bad, but uh, people people ask about them all the time. So basically, I was working at GameStop, and I got the I, I wanted to get into trying to make videos because. You see the angry video game nerd. You're like, hey, this is fun. I want to. I want to give it a shot. Um, and we made a series called Game Flop, and it was basically, <laughs> it was, I never it, was heard of this. it was about the worst video game store in the world. So it's kind of like parodying GameStop uh, with just like wacky scenarios and like all of the. Where was this shot? It was shot at my. My buddy worked at a computer repair store, and that's where we shot the episode. So we had, like, a glass case, so we put games in the glass case, and we had signage we put up. So we had, like, a set. It was it was kind of cool oh, looking. I found one re-uploaded to YouTube, by the way. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Trying for a DMCA strike. <laughs> I, I got the copyright strike, that one. It cannot be seen. Uh, yeah, right, they're, on. They're, they're pretty bad. Um, but, but this was, is like YouTube 1.0 still or 1.5, so it's supposed yeah, to be. It's bad. It's just like the days of 240p was the highest quality you could get. You look like you are 13 years old in this video. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's but and I, you're, I and you're wearing a Hooter shirt. I'm wearing a Hooter shirt. <laughs> um, I'm guessing that's episode two. It is the doctor is in. The doctor is in. Yep, that was a Doctor Mario episode. It's so dumb. Give, give it a watch when you get a chance. It's I'm looking bad. at the comments. Before he became a game historian, he was a comedian. Uh, is comedian in quotes or air quotes? No, it's not. Uh, uh, is this the only episode that survived? And the person uploads said, yeah, he deleted them all. So anyway, so you, you thought it was it was fun doing this. Plus, you got a little bit of a look at gaming history along the way at the same time. I didn't even talk about history that much. It was just like something fun for me and my friends to do, just to give it a shot and get some experience with video making. Um, 
Well, no, you're talking about Dr. Mario and how you play it. So this is informative, too. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a little bit of information. Actually, uh, around this time when I was watching, uh, you know, I was watching Icons on G4, I was watching ah. Angry Video Game Nerd, and my favorite parts of Angry Video Game Nerd were his long episodes, and he got into the history of these things he was making fun of. I thought that was the most interesting part. Like, why did Sega make this Sega CD? You know, why is Ghostbusters so bad? Uh, mm-hmm. Stuff like that. And so, I, you know, there wasn't anything like that on the internet as far as, like, video game history. Um, and Icons came on at random times on G4. It was my favorite show on G4, and I never knew when it came on. So I was like, well, I, I want to learn more about video game history. So I bought a bunch of books and read them, and I found them fascinating. And so that's when I decided, hey, I'm going to do a video game history show. I think it'd be a lot of fun. It's kind of my wheelhouse. I was going to school for history. I love video games, so why not just combine my two favorite things? And what was your first one? Was it the, was the top loader? Was that your first one? The NES2 top loader, and I got that idea because going through the comments section of AVGN videos, you know, he used a top loader in a lot of his episodes, and a lot of people would comment, what is that? What console is that? I've never seen that before. And so that's when I decided, well, I'll just tell people what this console is and why they made it and what's it all about. So remember that was one of our little tiffs on RetroWare. <laughs> he said this is not a good console. <laughs> I said this is not good. Um, that sh- that goes to show you that when James helped, he did help popularize older games, retro games. If, if you had a lot of people that uh, didn't know about the top loader, to me and you, I mean, we've known about these things ever since they came out. But even then, they were not, you know, they weren't highly um, highly produced. They weren't uh, ubiquitous back then. And then someone like James comes along and it gets it automatically, boom, there's an interest and that's your first video based yeah. upon an interest. It cannot be overstated how influential and important Angry Video Game Nerd was to the uh, resurgence of retro gaming or, you know, you know what I mean? Like people starting to collect again and... That year, uh, 2006 is when he started doing them regularly yeah. again. It's also the same year the Wii came out with the virtual console. So it's a very sort of unique year where I always say that's, to me, 2006 is always the year when people say, when do you think retro gaming started to get big? I always yep. say it's 2006. That's always the year I said, and these are the reasons why. Uh, you know, the virtual console comes out, and a lot of people have virtual console games, or at least have the menu to look at all those games. And that's the first time in 15 years you're seeing these NES games again. Right. You know, that, well, I remember Blaster Master. I remember, you know, Double Dragon 2. And then just that little spark right there. That Nintendo took that leap into the virtual console. And remember, that's 100 million consoles sold. Yeah. And and if even 5% of those people end up browsing the virtual console and seeing the games involved and start buying them, that's enough to sort of spark. Even 1% of, of, you know, or one half of a percent, that's enough to get people interested to at least start looking. And then with YouTube, and then you say, oh, what's popular? You know, and your video game nerd. And you go on game trailers, which was mostly you know, modern reviews and trailers, but then you have this guy every other week for a year and a half, uh, or at least every month for a while too, talking about these retro games. And so mm-hmm. it was this confluence of events, uh, that occurred there, you know, and I, yep. and I saw it cause I saw it from before and the same as you, we saw it before. And then afterwards how it sort of shifted. It's just yeah. interesting. You know, it was kind of the perfect storm of everything coming together. And I mean, now it's more popular than, than even back then. Oh, absolutely. It's probably gone up like 10 times. Yeah. You can probably say easily. Yep. 
you know, we can talk about, you know, video game conventions in a bit about that. You want to talk about a little, you know, retroware history. You know, retroware sort of cop- capitalized on, on the, this, you know, the resurgence of older games. We're and just, uh, we're, we were both we're, on there for a while. Yeah, we're we're following the timeline of my show. So <laughs> I release, <laughs> I release like, okay, here's the story. I, I released any, the NES2 episode. Um, actually, no, this was before I made Gaming Historian. I wanted to get Game Flop on Retroware, <laughs> and they re- they rejected me. Which thank makes you, Lance. <laughs> yeah, which which makes sense because it's not a good show. But when I started making Game and Historian, and I got featured on Screw Attack a few times, and I gained like three thousand subscribers, like in a in a few weeks, it was very quick. And that's a lot, a lot for like two thousand. Uh, eight. Back right? then, that lot. was huge. Yeah. yeah. And then RetroWare reached out to me and said, hey, we really like Game and Historian. Do you want to be on the site? And so that's when I joined RetroWare. I wasn't one of the original RetroWare members, but I was I was uh, probably there after a year of them existing. So I, w- I was one of the early content creators on there. You were like 2.0 RetroWare. <laughs> Maybe like 1.5. 1. 1. 5. Yeah. So I'd be, I'd be 2.0 with the, you know, the, I guess when the, the site ballooned up for a couple of years and we had like, you know, probably I'd say 80 to 90% of the biggest uh, YouTubers in terms of retro games were on retro at the time, which, yep. which was, I guess, yeah, fairly retro- important at the time. Yeah. <laughs> retro was, was big for a while. And uh, one of my regrets is after I finished college, I was unemployed and just kind of looking for jobs, so I was at home all day, and I just like didn't do anything. I should have, like, <laughs> I should have focused on making videos at that time. Well, I think it would have been better, but yeah. Well, you probably weren't monetizing, right? So it was probably would have been like, uh, you know, what would be the point almost? Or I mean, just this, for fun, or this you, was you around. About it. This is this was around when like Blip started coming along, and so, so I could have made. I could have gotten a check for twenty five dollars every now and then. <laughs> well, uh, Blip was one of the things that a lot allowed a site like Retroware to survive, and the sites like that guy the glasses. Because for a lot of these sites, many of the people that were on weren't still partnered yet on YouTube. MCNs weren't really big, so it made sense that you could post your videos off of YouTube. Because that was a lot of the only way you're making money. Yep. Because uh, you weren't getting any income, and I'm not saying you could get rich off of YouTube at the time in like 2010 or 2011, but this would get some compensation for your hard work or your equipment or the games you're buying was nice. Yeah. You know, even if it was a hundred dollars a month or a couple hundred bucks a month, that's huge back then. You know, and like, their their CPM was ridiculous on Blitz. Twenty dollars uh, hours, I think, it was probably twelve to fifteen. I saw it thirty dollars one month, like like, the, like the, at the high time. It was like December, like two thousand thirteen, was like when I think it like it peaked, and it was yeah. like thirty dollars CPM. I was like, holy crap! Yeah, he, like, that was just insane. Today, a thirty dollars CPM today would be it's unheard of. Unheard of. Yeah, <laughs> I can move into a bigger place, so I don't have to buy a storage unit for my extra crap. You know, I could, <laughs> <laughs> you, you could you could afford that U-Haul and cart all your games over. I could Kansas City. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, I graduated in 2009, so that was the summer of 2009. I was unemployed and doing nothing, and I should have, I should have focused on my videos, but I did. I put out, like, one or two videos over a span of three months, and that's, that's not good. That's, but hey, that's not bad for, you know, longer form videos, maybe not necessarily the game quickie balloon fight video, but, (laughs) (laughs) but like... 
But like the, uh, you know, you have a, a video about, let's see, back then. Oh, you had a lot of game quickies back then. I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah you should, but even, you should, even, even back then, I, my videos, they, they hadn't, I hadn't found my identity back then. Uh, like I have, I feel like I have today. Like today, I, like people, re- I feel like people recognize my show as long form, educational videos on video games. But back then, my videos, I'd be lucky if it got to ten minutes. They were the bir- pr- pretty short. The birth of scrolling, one minute eighteen seconds. Wow. Yeah. So you were doing these little, like little snippets in the game history. I almost, I tried to do yeah, I tried to do kind of like mini episodes just so I could get stuff out. Um, so I talked about like how Birdo's gender is, you know, they got it, you know, from the Super Mario Brothers 2 manual. You had to, you learned that, uh, Birdo thinks he's a female, like Birdo is a male, but thinks he's a female. Mm-hmm. And so I did a video on that and I did a video on the birth of scrolling and I did one on the, um, oh shoot. What is the, uh. The the original prototype Nintendo Entertainment, the Advanced Video System. That's it. AVS, yeah. The AVS, yeah. The one that you can see at the Nintendo World Store. So, just little stuff but, like that. But they got a ton of views, one hundred ninety-one thousand views. You maybe you weren't making money off of it, but you got exposure for sure. With probably with the help of like websites like Retroware, Screw Attack, you know. Yep. So it looks like you once once you got to let's see, two thousand and let's just say two thousand twelve. You're still doing a lot of smaller ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Little Samson review. I think that was one of the first ones I saw of yours. Was that, that Little Samson review? Uh, was that was that one? That was. A, I made that right after we moved to Kansas City. That was one of the first videos I did when we moved back. Um, that was one of the games I kept when we moved. Thankfully, right? Holy crap! If you got rid of that. yeah. Well, actually, here's the story of that. When I sold all my games, I had you know I made a lot of money, and I said, you know what? I'm gonna splurge. I'm gonna buy a game I've always wanted. And I bought Little Samson, and it was eighty bucks. That's about what I bought it for. Yeah, yeah, 80, about ninety bucks. I bought mine in two thousand and ten. Yep, I think about that's, that. Yeah, that's when I bought. That's about when I bought mine. And, and even then, uh, I was like, "Oh, this is expensive." But no, it was a deal. That was an open auction back when open auctions <laughs> still existed. Uh, yeah. You know, for, for even rare games. I mean, buy it nows are taking over. But sometimes you'd be like, "Oh, it's an open auction. Let's see what it goes for." And you get it for like twenty percent, thirty percent less a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. I, I, at that time I was like, man, this is the most I've ever paid for a video game. <laughs> and now it's what, over a thousand? 700, 800, a thousand, yeah. who knows? Someone it's going to collapse. Someone bought one at Portland last year for over a thousand, just a loose cart. Wow. So you ever, you ever think about, ah, screw it, I'm going to cash in. You know, I've thought about it, but actually Kristen, my wife is convincing me not to cash it in. She's like, no, don't, you know, it might go my- up in value some more. Well, my stance is this: <laughs> I, if you if if you can afford to still have it, you should hold on to the hard to find stuff. Yeah, you're and that's, sell your... that's basically where I'm at right now. Like, it's one of my favorite games, so it's it'd be you hard to part it. with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is is the you know the nine hundred dollar profit going to be worth it? You know, like at this point, you know, and if that's the case, you know, maybe talk to your buddy Pat. Maybe we can work out some sort of deal. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Reseller, Pat! I need some uh, landscaping work done on my house. I gotta pay for it, so. So was your time at Retro... The time you were at Retro, and I was like four or five years, right? More than that. A little more. Um, uh, let's see. I joined in 2008, and I left in 2014? Which is when I left. Which is halfway through 2014. 
Yeah, six years. Yep. It wasn't planned, but it was you left, I left, Billy and Jay left. Yeah, yeah. and actually, people people do think we had like this coordinated effort to leave Retroware, but it really wasn't like that at all. We just coincidentally all decided to move on at the same time. Which ended Retroware 2.0, I guess, or 3.0. I don't know what that point of. But, yeah. but what was important about those sites, though, um, even though it may not have worked out in the long... I mean, I mean there was good years. Uh, stuff like the video game years uh, would never have happened without a site like Retroware, which right. is one of the things I remember telling you when I got mad at you at that MAGFest that one year, when you're like, why are we doing this Retroware site? <laughs> you remember that a few years ago. That was like five years ago. Um, yeah. I, like I think yeah. I do or remember was... this conversation. Yeah, when I was trying to get everyone yeah. pumped up, like, okay, guys, we, we, guys, we get a chance to do something cool, and Norm's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I was questioning everything in my life at that time. <laughs> You're like, what's going on? Yeah. But it was good that we got to meet all of us. Like, we're, like we're, I'm, I'm still friends with uh, mostly everyone from RetroWare. Yeah. You know, got the chance to meet guys like you, Dan. Well, I brought Billy and Jay onto RetroWare. So, like, mm-hmm. I helped recruit some people that I'm, I still know. You know, so I think that was that was one. Of, I think the the benefits at the time of having a sort of a a uh, conglomerate site like that was that it really was a strength in numbers at the time. But then, of course, once MCNs got in there and YouTube got stronger, it, it made less sense uh, to sort of siphon off your views to one site. I mean, that's that was your view at the time, which I, I agree with overall. But at the time, you still had Blip, though, so Blip was still something that you could at least okay, we're still making money off of here too. Right. But yeah, I, I, I semi-abandoned YouTube for like a year and a half, two years. Like mm-hmm. myself would go on there way later or not at all, and that that cost me subscribers. We'll yeah. just say between like 2012, 2013, where like you know I should have been putting my stuff up more regularly versus just uh, mini episodes or teasers or just you know I, I remember I I've, I've always put on like my event coverage videos when I used to do that. I'm not sure how I used to edit those stupid things you know like me 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 and Ru wrote the retro video game you know history uh, museum at like e3 and him not knowing what a 2600 was <laughs> but you know stuff like that anyway, <laughs> I, I gotta give him shit for that but you know so i saw the benefits of that but once you moved on though mm-hmm. from retroware and we don't get into the more specific reasons why if there were any for me there were but uh, that I'll, um, for my for my uh 30 for 30 i'll talk about why we left retroware but okay. um when Save you come it for back the to the documentary, after, yeah, after I want to burn all my bridges. But you come back to YouTube, and now at this point, you're doing all long form videos, all like ten minutes or more, for the most part. Right. So in 2014, I made a goal to with with Kristen to save our money so I could eventually quit my job and try to do videos full time because that was when I started to see money from YouTube, um, and so I thought man, if I just put more hours into this, I think it could get really successful and I would love doing it. So you, and you had your full, your full screen deal at the time, correct? Y- yes, I did. I was with full screen, um, which I signed up for in 2012. It was a while, a while ago. But um, once that contract ended, I got on ScreenWave. And once I was on ScreenWave... That's when I quit my full-time job, and I started doing videos full-time, and that's when I got into the longer-form videos because I had more time to research and learn about these topics, and because that's kind of where I wanted the show to go. Um, I always like long-form videos. You know, Ken Burns is my idol, so it just made sense. (laughs) 
So you move on. You're doing now these, we'll say, one about one a month, one every few weeks. I yeah. remember at one point you were trying to do one every couple of weeks I, and get them out. In, tw- in 2015, I started, I tried to do one a week in 2015. Which is nuts. That's, which that's is, just, <laughs> I got burned out. I think I lasted four months. And then I said, no, I can't. I want, I want to do longer form videos. I want to do more research. I can't do it in a week. So then I tried every two weeks, and even that was not enough time. So now I'm averaging like one every three weeks right now, um, and then like and every, you're sa- you're, sa- you're satisfied that that's a proper amount of time to do the writing, do the research, yeah, edit it. And usually, every kind of like every other episode is a long form one, and then in between the long form ones is like a shorter one, like maybe a book review or something like that. So maybe. Maybe you reviewed a certain NES guidebook. Yeah, and uh, I hope my check's in the mail for that review because. We... <laughs> well, not if you said the the uh, what was what was that? I had an issue with you. You said the, the reviews were a little bit. You said pedestrian or dry, bland. I, I, you said they were bland, and you, then yeah. you said, "Oh, that's that's not that bad." I'm like, "That's pretty bad." I mean, you could have <laughs> used dry. Dry sounds better than bland. <laughs> yeah, I, I I found it funny that people thought we uh, like collaborated on that review there was not there was nothing to it i mean i oh, thought know. i paid you yeah yeah of course if i paid you i wouldn't let you say bland and, and um, that was that was my argument i was like if if i was paid to do that review why would i say the the reviews were bland and why would i criticize like some of the design the margins, aspects of the book I don't know. Oh, I, made, you, you, I, you I, I think I made it very clear up front in the review that like we know each other and that I wrote for the book, I wasn't compensated at all. So I don't know. People people trying to read what they want to read. Oh, you 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 have the Pat Hader brigade out there. We know that. So you know what, whatever. <laughs> you don't you don't want to come in on that side. There's there's psychopaths out there that are drawn to me for whatever reason to my personality. But let's talk about the how the books have become a big part now of retro gaming. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed like a few years ago, three, four years ago, there was maybe one book or two books. Now you have like bitmap books that does all these art books, you know, yeah. whether it's, um, they do it for like Commodore or I think they even did like a, yeah, I think they did like a Sinclair one. Uh, there's, there's like the NES art book out now. You have, uh, my book out, you have competitor, com- competing books. You have a Sega Master System book. That I remember you reviewed a Sega Master System guidebook. Yeah. So now it's like there's like five or six a year coming out, it seems, for these retro gaming books. There's a lot. Um, back back in the day, there weren't many at all. You can go on Amazon, and I think you can count them on one hand how many video game books there were. You had like history books, I remember. Yeah. Uh, you could get like, what was that one from the 90s that was the big one? They had they had Game Over. They game had, Over. They uh, had Ultimate History of Video Games. They had I think I had that. All Your Base Are Belong to Us. And, Don't have that one. And they had replay, and so those were the four I remember the most. But yeah, today there's tons. Uh, Boss Fight Books is a publisher, and all they do is publish video game books. You like I said, the bitmap books. Even like Nintendo is making some of these history books now. Uh, that playing with oh, they power have one book, the... which, playing with power, which I, I came looked out at NES a few Classic. weeks ago. And it is not a great book. <laughs> oh, okay. They're going to pay you to do that review. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Boss fight books is interesting because it's all text for the most part, right? Yep. Uh, from what I saw. They're like little paperbacks. Yep. And the, and the topics are a single game. They have to be about a single title. And um, I guess you can talk about... Uh, you can go through the game and talk about them, or stories about playing the game. It's, I guess it's whatever the author wants to do. Uh, background about it. Um, Ken Bauman wrote the book about Earthbound for Boss Fight Books, and he kind of talked about not only the history of Earthbound, uh, playing the game with his brother, but actually taking lessons he learned from Earthbound and applying them to his life story. Which it, it oh, was wow. a, it was a really good book. Uh, that's probably my favorite book from the Boss Fight book series. But yeah, it's it's stuff like that. That's interesting. You, you ever think about uh, writing a a video game book, Norm? Maybe I asked you this before. <laughs> you know, I I definitely have some ideas for video game books. Um, I even thought about pitching to Boss Fight Books a book about Little Samson. Because you have to do it about a game, so I was like, "Well, I could do Little Samson because I feel like I could do enough for for a book on that." It's well, just... you know, uh, I could start my own publishing label. I, I did. I have done a book, so uh, maybe we'll have punk books, and you can <laughs> pitch it to me. We can get that going. Punk books. <laughs> punk books. Yeah, I, I I've thought about doing a book on like you know twenty moments that change video game history, or you know something like that. But uh, that's probably further down the line. All right, I'll, I'll keep. I'll, I'll keep bothering you. It seems like every person I know, I bother to do a book. I bother you to do to do a book. Uh, Pixel Dan to do a toy book. We might work on one together. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Andre Meadows, Black Nerd Comedy. I said, dude, you'd be perfect to write a book. And everyone's like, yeah, I know, I can do it. It's just the time and everything. Everyone, everyone gives me the same response. I'm like pushing everyone to get into books because it's it's amazing to me that you think with the internet and video content that books would die off, and they really haven't. They've sort of become a main supplement to, I think. Um, video entertainment some people really still like having a book having a reference guide or something to look at that isn't just like you know over in the lick of an eye on their phone or on their ipad or what have you yeah and and the other thing is like i mean i know there's a lot more books now but still compared to other topics video game books there's it's still a relatively young industry so there's not a ton of reference and source material in book form for this culture so yeah, people are eating it up right now. Yeah, that Game Over book was, was a main sort of primary source for a lot of people in the 90s, correct? Since that was really the only Nintendo resource at the Game, time that kind of went behind Game the Over, scenes. Yeah, Game Over is still, to me, the like definitive book about video games. It's so well written, and the amount of information he was able to get from Nintendo was incredible. And I think since that book came out, Nintendo doesn't really talk anymore about uh, the inner workings of their company. They're more they're more careful about that, which is funny because something just came out from an ex uh, an ex worker. Um, I can't work on. I find the link. Uh, it's, oh, give me a second. I'll bring it up. But um, yeah, that book, that game over book. And they did. I think he did like three different versions of it. Right. He kept updating it until the late nineties or so. Yeah. But um, but there, it's so popular and, and highly regarded that I can't buy a, a used one for under fifty dollars. For, for a paperback, this guy should reprint him. He'd get he'd make a ton of money probably. You know if he did that, I think. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful book. It's the one I recommend to everybody. So I have that one, the Ultimate History of Video Games. I found that one. That's a pretty good one. Um, those are the two main ones I saw. I was like, oh, these are the ones that we knew that existed. I'm surprised no one's going to do. Oh, someone will do another one that'll sort of you know be for all video game history, a giant tome, if you will. 
you yeah. know, like the Encyclopedia Britannica of video game history uh, at some point. But that's, I think, where we're leading towards is that the medium's getting taken more and more seriously, and the books help with that, even though that could be a sort of a logical fallacy. Oh, just because it's a book, it's more important, or you take it seriously. But no, the, the more and more books that are written on this, I think the more people in their head are like, oh, this is a real topic. This isn't yeah. just like a, kid, a kid's thing. Sure. And, I mean, no one's going to write a book if it's not interesting. So, I mean, there's 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 interesting well, stories in video game history, so people are writing them. Console hey, Wars that... was a, a fantastic book. You know, the the intrigue between Sega and Nintendo, like, that was a great story. Did you call it bland as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> console Wars? My, my hang-up with Console Wars was the dialogue. Oh, that's right. But, but Blake, my pal Blake Harris, who wrote the foreword for a certain NES guy book, he, um, I got tied in. He, uh, um... Yeah, it was. What's interesting about Blake is, he's almost like, I mean, he likes video games, but I think he just saw the fact that that was such an interesting story overall. Yeah, it's, it's versus more, the it's, fact that it's just video games. Yeah, I mean the 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 interest of console wars isn't even about the video games. It's just like the this, business dealings. The, this small company like going from what nine percent market share to fifty five percent. In a matter of a few years, that's a crazy story. Breaking the Nintendo stranglehold, true right? underdog story. Yeah. So the, the so the story that just came out was someone that worked at uh, Nintendo EAD. Oh, uh, uh, that Chris here? Kohler interviewed. I think uh, I yes. saw. I think I saw that story. Yeah. Our pal Chris Kohler interviewed Motoy Akamoto. So he he has a little behind the scenes. Of you, like how everyone wore like the same sort of uniform, mm-hmm. like then was like they were like engineers, like you know, like in a, in a lab, like wearing like lab coats working <laughs> on video games. That's just like, I guess that makes sense when you look at it that way. I mean, that's how they treated the workers back at Atari. They're like they're making like you know just toys on an assembly line. Yeah, but no, they're programming video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just interesting that this stuff's coming out more and more. That'll be the breakthrough, though. Like Console Wars, you know, there's going to be a documentary for sure. But if that comes out, like, in theaters, like, major motion picture, you know, like, an actual, like, movie, like, like yeah. The Social Network, which the rights have been uh, bought by uh, Seth Rogen and Evan right. Goldberg, that you'll have people, I think, look at video games in the mainstream, not just our little bubble, be like, wow, there's some interesting crap that happened. I just see Sonic the Hedgehog on TV and don't think about it. there's an entire business empire, you know, you know, rising from this, or there's all behind the scenes sniping and jabbing between two companies. Like this is this is interesting. Yeah, you know, and I think that's we're we're getting there slowly but surely. Where, you know, it's it's sort of like going up the uh, roller coaster, like little chain by chain, you know, or link yeah. by link. Uh, part of the pun, but we're getting there. It's it's part of what makes my job so fun is because I get to like discover these stories and learn about them and tell people. Like, why it's important and the impact it has on the industry. Like, my last episode about Bleem and the virtual game station. Like, back in the day when Bleem came out, it was a really cool product, but I don't think anyone thought of the uh, the influence it had on law and fair use and reverse engineering. And that's the big story with Bleem and virtual game station. Sure. And how it made, made it open up that, oh, emulation's okay. You know, as long as you you know backwards engineer it the proper way, then yeah. hey, that's it's very important. Legal now. Now downloading ROMs, that's a totally different thing. But like, yeah, well, I don't, can't I don't do know that, about can that. You? <laughs> it's can't do that. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting it's, how that inter- 
But it's interesting that you're doing this because, like, I think of I had Bleem when it came out. I bought it at Electronic Boutique. I remember, mm-hmm. remember the shiny yellow box. Still, it was like whatever it was twenty nine ninety nine or whatever when I bought it. Yep, uh, back when it came price. out. And you're not just you're telling people about this these uh, products and games and consoles that never came out. Excuse me, that came out and no one really even heard of at the time, but also reminding some people about this stuff. Otherwise, I would have probably never thought of Bleem again until like you know four years from now. I would have popped into my head. You know, so it's like a constant reminder of this sort of a behind-the-scenes strange aspect of game history. It's not just another video about, oh, uh, d- did you know Super Mario Bros. 2 was Doki Doki Panic Norm? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, 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 makes, it makes selecting topics kind of up in the air because the Bleem episode was something my patrons wanted to do. So we did a vote, okay. we did a vote and they were like, yeah, we want to learn more about Bleem and Sony. Um, and my thought was, when this video comes out, it'll be interesting, but it's not going to get a lot of views because it's not a topic. People aren't searching for Bleem in YouTube; they're just not. So, well, they don't know about it. I mean, when right. Bleem came out, it's not like it sold millions of copies, right? But what happens is people are watching that video and they're like, "Wow, this is really interesting," and they're sharing it. And so that video got way more views than I expected it to. Um, so, you know, when you're selecting topics for videos, sometimes you want to choose a topic that's like trending at the time or like maybe a game anniversary is coming out. So you like know people are going to be searching for that. Uh, but other times it's just an interesting story and people find it interesting and they want others to see it. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's interesting how for some YouTubers, it works strictly off of, okay, all my subscribers are going to definitely watch all the videos I put out. Yeah. I want to have half of my subscribers watch my videos. I think for someone like you, where people will find them, maybe it gets reposted, it might go on a gaming website, uh, you know, newsworthy. Um, sometimes it happens more organically, where a YouTuber gains popularity or the works gets seen differently than others. Mm-hmm. Not just, oh, all my subscribers are going to watch my stuff. Like, like, talk about your Seattle Mariners video. What happened yeah. with that? I think that's a, that's one of the most interesting stories I know from a YouTuber about one of their videos. What happened to it? Um, so in, gosh, what was that? June June of 2016, I put out a episode about uh, Nintendo purchasing the Seattle Mariners because earlier that year, Nintendo sold off a bunch of their shares of the team. I think they ninety percent. They own so like much. they own like ten percent now. Yeah, they sold um, a chunk of it. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about when they bought the team because it was it's a really interesting story and it you know, about a foreign investor buying an American pastime and there was rampant xenophobia and not just in that realm, but with business throughout the world. People were kind of scared of Japanese businesses taking over, like in the car industry. Um so, we were in a recession in the late 80s. People were still like, oh, what's going on? Right. The early 90s, that recession. Right. So I, I made a video about that, and um, I used old clips from old Mariners baseball games. Uh, I figured, well, fair use, maybe. You know, I'll just put it up and see what happens. <laughs> it's up in the air. Um, so the video didn't do super well because baseball's just not a super I don't know maybe my subscribers aren't into baseball I thought it was a good video and you're 
you're you're a guest star in that video. Um, oh, that's right. You had me be the evil commissioner. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, Major League Baseball copyright claimed the video, and so I was like, "Well, that's fine. You know, they'll get they'll get the ad revenue as long as the video's up." Well, then I got a cease and desist in the mail from Major League Baseball, uh, asking me to delete the video and any social media posts about the video. So I had to basically delete any evidence that the video was made. And the reason they asked me to delete it was because I had a Patreon. And so they thought people would watch my video and then just give me money on Patreon for it. So I was profiting off of Major League Baseball. Oh, so they, they, they looked at it as, we don't want you making a dime off of this in any way, shape, or form. Right. And they also claimed that it could be confused for a official officially licensed Major League Baseball product, which was flattering for them to say, but uh, I thought it was kind of silly. This Week in Baseball presents <laughs> Norm the Gangster. <laughs> yeah. This is Mel Allen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, were you, were you scared or like, wow, uh, one of my videos got seen by so many people or at least got the attention that I never thought it would. It's, it was scary in that it was major league baseball sending me a cease and desist, uh, (laughs) because I've heard horror stories of them sending, you know, people cease and desist because they recorded a game on a VHS tape back in the nineties. You know, they have that that little thing that flashes before the games. You cannot redistribute this game without the written consent of Major League Baseball. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they're they're serious about this. Like, it's not just there for fun. So, I mean, there was there was a little fear of okay, they could like sue me and take everything in our house, and you know, I'll be the broke historian <laughs> <laughs> begging for money on Twitter or something. But the homeless game historian, yeah, living in a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> Knocking on your door, can I live with you? <laughs> Relaunch my career at Pat's house. <laughs> no, You're in my so, closet. Um, they, but you know, I I I signed the cease and desist. I deleted the video, and now it doesn't exist. But what's happened is I've been talking with them about getting it licensed because I'd like for this video to exist again. But so what will that consist of? Like you pay like a, like a fee that you mean? Okay, I I basically license out your footage so I can show it again. Or they just say, oh, we want to show it at our, our, our you know Mariner Stadium every now and then. Yeah. We want to we want there's, to be able to show it. There's three options I basically have. One is I purchase the rights to use Major League Baseball footage, and that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, okay, <laughs> which two. is which is not an option. Option two is. Actually, the Seattle Mariners or Major League Baseball purchase the rights to the video from me, and they can do whatever they want with it, and they can make all the money from it. Um, That's a pipe dream, but it is an option. Uh, And then option three is I remake the video without using any copyrighted material. So, I mean, you can still use, like, um, still photos, or even that be out of bounds? Still photos would work. Um, I've thought of hiring an animator to like animate scenes from those baseball games. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe hand puppets. <laughs> it's one of my favorite videos I've ever done. So it's a shame that it's not online. 
Although there is a bootleg version. I hear. Oh, well, you're not responsible for what's on Daily Motion or Meta Cafe. That's you know, right. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. But, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting uh, predicament I was in. That cease and desist was kind of scary. But in a way, like I said, it was kind of flattering. You see this like package show up, this big envelope with like a seal on it. And you know, I was like, register. oh, from Major League Baseball? <laughs> <laughs> they want me to try out for left field. <laughs> I'm joining the Royals. The Royals. Want me to... <laughs> <laughs> I saw my glove laying around. Honey, I told you this would happen. They saw me on TV catch that foul ball. Yeah. They saw me play I... church, church League softball on Sunday. I like my arm. You... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see you go the option where you get someone to even just do stills that you do the Ken Burns effect of like someone drew like an eight bit or sixteen bit version of Ichiro throwing a ball from like you know right field. Yeah, that'd that, be very that can be very cute. That's that's my idea. And then like I can't use I can't even use audio from like the commentators, so I'd have to like recreate the commentators as well. It would just be it'd be a ton of work. <laughs> As H.A.L. he catches it, he's going to fire it home out, he's out! You yeah, know, like, get a, a Vin Scully impersonator. I'll, I'll do I'll do the old-timey uh, radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that, that's exciting. I, I think it's interesting in that you can see that uh, video games crosses over into not just our little, you know, the gaming bubble. You're one of these people like me that sees video games as could be one part of your life like you like sports right you like history yes. you like video games yep. um and that's refreshing because for uh, i think too many people at least the people that are sort of in the community that we know where it's like oh if it's sports i don't want to hear about it at all or if it's not video game related uh, screw it i don't even care if it's i don't want to hear about politics just video games video games so it's good that to see you branch out but like you said the views show that maybe people were were pre predetermined not to want to watch the video yeah it was definitely like uh the people that did watch it who are fans of baseball they loved it because it it was kind of more about baseball than video games the only thing in video game of all was nintendo wanted to buy Mm -hmm. the mariners but um yeah i i think it's good to be well-rounded like i have a lot of different hobbies and i'm really into sports and so making that episode was a lot of fun it was maybe more... the sports, the sports historian. Or no, you're gonna get copyright, <laughs> you know, blocked and everything. I, I actually, I honestly thought of making not sports, but um, just like interesting stories from American history that I have seen. Like I go to a lot of museums and stuff, and I read about these interesting stories, and then I like I go on YouTube and like, oh, I want to learn more about this, and there's like nothing about it. Well, like, you know, is it? I got to spread the word about this cool story. You can learn about the Third Amendment from Colin Moriarty. You can just <laughs> did a video about that. Yeah, I actually i i i enjoyed that video. Um, that's that's one of those amendments that nobody remembers or talks about or really cares about because it's not very relevant today. But um, it was an interesting yeah, I video. Think, yeah, I, I don't see uh, Kansas City being bombarded with troops that want to just live in your house yeah i don't see that being an issue anytime soon yeah hey but you never know national guard you know it could be you know relevant depending on the circumstance yeah uh for sure uh what about uh you know this this new fresh youtuber normal guitar i hear about i'm hearing good things about about normal guitar <laughs> it's pronounced uh normal gatari oh okay yeah no, I'm, I'm just messing with you it's that's <laughs> uh that was a uh I did that I've done that for the past two years for April Fools. 
Um, it's just I I wanted to spoof like every trope you see with a YouTube gaming review show. That's just very common. So like last year, I reviewed a clearly crappy bootleg Famicom cart that you sold me. It's just super easy. Oh, to that make was fun mine. Of. Yeah, I bought it from you. Oh, you, did you tell me you were making that video? No, when I bought it at the time, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. So I just bought it from you. I think you sold it to me for five bucks. It was. But no, but I don't think you even told me this video was even out. I don't remember seeing it. No. No. <laughs> what the <hell? laughs> um, And then this year, I wanted to spoof all of the just kind of dumb theory videos. Like. That's just a theory. <laughs> and I'm not. I wasn't. I swear I wasn't purposely targeting game theory because there's tons of channels that do those dumb theory videos and so i just i wrote that script in 10 minutes that toad is dead and i came up with a theory of why he's dead in 10 minutes and it was really (laughs) dumb it makes no sense my my argument does not hold up at all but it was fun to make um and people it was just sort of the over the top Sort of like, I think I'm right. I have knowledge because I searched for it on the internet in three seconds sort of video where it's like, all right. Yeah. Which is which is what you obviously see with a lot of these videos where you know that these people doing these videos, come on, their knowledge is not even secondhand. It's thirdhand at, at, at points where it's like, it's something someone someone said they might have heard of at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like they clearly just went to a wiki and looked this up and the, the title is super clickbaity and the thumbnail is super clickbaity. So... It was fun to spoof that, but what's what's my favorite part of it was I kind of took the form of this character the whole day. So like on Twitter, I went on these weird rants about <laughs> how the Wall Street Journal was attacking Normogatari, and <laughs> like I claimed that I got millions of emails asking for merch. Uh, you know, just like stuff you see all the time from YouTubers. Well- where you were just like, you were you were taking the piss out of maybe su- certain YouTubers and taking the piss. Maybe That's they're a great, great way they're, to put they're it. May, maybe in somewhat inflated egos at times. Maybe slightly. Yes, yes, exactly. I did a I did a Q and A at the end of the night, and you know I I said you have to ask me a question during this Q and A or I will not talk to you. Like yeah, it's just a YouTuber like, with like this, a super huge ego. Okay, this is my the time for Q and A. It's got to happen now, you know. Right. Like, or ask, else I'm gone. You're not going to see me again. Yeah, stroke my ego. <laughs> ask me questions. Stuff like that. <laughs> what was the reception? People get that it was a joke or a send off or. I th- I think most people got that I was joking around. Um, there are a few people on Twitter who took me seriously. Like one time I tweeted. Uh, does anybody want to debate debate me on Twitch? And I, <laughs> I had I think people. I, I had people actually respond like, uh, "Yes, I will debate you. What what topic would you like to discuss?" Like they were <laughs> legit wanting to debate me, and I was like, okay. "Without without knowing the topic, they just want to go on Twitch." Yeah, yeah. I think so most people got upon, the joke though. Sure. So you're touching upon, I guess. Uh, YouTubers are now becoming in the mainstream more and more for mostly negative reasons the past couple of months. It we'll definitely say. seems that way. <laughs> uh, so when you see this, it's it's strange because when, when people go, Pat, are you you know do you consider yourself a gamer? 
I say, well, I am a gamer, but it's a part of my life. I don't consider myself, I'm just a gamer. When I hear someone say I'm a gamer, to me that means that's all they do in their life is play video games and that's it. They don't have any other interests. Yeah. Or the same thing with saying I'm a YouTuber, meaning like I'm a guy who goes on YouTuber, YouTube and does vlogs and that's my entire identity. But now we're at a point where it seems like if YouTubers are getting mostly negative uh, mainstream coverage, I like using the legacy media coverage instead. Because I think YouTube <laughs> is mainstream now. More people go go on YouTube than watch than read the Wall Street Journal, you know. So to me, that's more mainstream. But anyway, so when you see all this happen, and you use YouTube obviously as your main form of income now, use it for mm-hmm. entertainment medium. Do you consider yourself thrown in with the large basket of YouTubers, or do you still see it as, oh, well, I'm on YouTube, but it's really just an avenue of it, of of creativity and entertainment, and you know, obviously something I do for a living. Uh, yeah, the latter. It's it's an avenue for creativity and something I do for a living. Um, am I a YouTuber? I guess technically yes, because I'm on YouTube and that's how I make my living. <laughs> but it's funny when like when people are like the mainstream media is attacking YouTubers. I don't think of myself when I hear that. You know, you I sort don't of see of, it I as. Yeah, I you just, don't see you as a main target of the quote unquote mainstream media going after YouTubers in general and trying to take your ad revenue from you or yeah. do something dastardly. And you don't see the war brewing. No. And YouTube is enormous. I mean, there, there's... Enormous. Enormous. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's huge. <laughs> I, they showed that... Google showed that thing the other day where they asked like a thousand teens what's the most... what's the best brand. And I think YouTube was the number one brand. I mean, it's... Like you said, it's taking over... Uh, how people get their entertainment. Like, people are cutting the cable cord. I don't have cable. I mean, I watch YouTube. I'm <laughs> I'm getting closer. I mean, they just, they just came out in a few cities with YouTube TV, which is, to me, like, common sense because I think we're going to get to that point within 10, 20 years where the majority of people will be watching TV uh, with a service like uh, Sling or YouTube TV. You know, they're, they'll pay, like, their 30 bucks a month to get, like, those 25, 30 channels. Then cable's just going to die out or less adapt an a la carte menu option, which I should have done 20 years ago. Yes. You know, where it's like pay for the channels you want or go out of business. And they're, they're like Blockbuster, you know, holding on for dear life and not and, and, and starting their online service two or three years too late behind Netflix. And now Blockbuster is gone because they didn't adapt in time. And that's the way cable TV is going. Absolutely. Yep. But it's interesting because these channels like ESPN, for example, or I don't know, even... Maybe not the like the quote unquote older ones like ABC, CBS, NBC, but it might be twenty years from now that they'll be large watched mainly on like YouTube. Like people yeah. will buy the subscription and watch them on YouTube versus even having a cable service for them. Like people will know, oh, it's a YouTube. Like what? What's TV? I don't even know what that is. I know what YouTube is. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm watching the Super Bowl on YouTube. You yeah, know, like that's you, where I mean, we're headed. You saw you saw the NFL broadcast their games on Twitter this past season. It was on uh, Verizon on the app for free. Uh, yeah. They had the app you can watch Super Bowl for data free. I thought that was incredible. You know, it, we're... so they're slowly they're slowly moving that way. Um, I I'm excited for when they're fully like okay, cable is over. Um, like you you've heard YouTube's of Swing over. TV. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. YouTube is actually over now. Uh, <laughs> You, you've heard of Sling TV, where you, yeah, you can buy the individual channels. That was the first Sling. popular one. Where, yeah, yeah. So I think I think we're definitely moving in that direction. Do you, do you see uh, YouTube moving to that? Like, sort of in terms of smaller YouTubers, do you think it'll ever be like uh, we have YouTube Red, which is whatever ten dollars a month uh, for yeah. no ads? Do you think there'll ever be a block of like 
you know, see Markiplier and PewDiePie for five bucks a month and, you know, put it behind a paywall. <laughs> you think we're ever going to go in that direction or you think it's always going to be sort of the, the free option with ads? I, I think it'll be the free option with ads for a long time. I mean, you have the YouTube Red shows, which are like the exclusive premiere shows. I, I actually, I have YouTube Red, um, but I've never watched a YouTube Red show. Um, I use YouTube Red, one, because you don't have to worry about ads anymore. And two, it comes with a subscription to Google Music, so you can listen to, you know, all the music you want, any any song you want. So ten bucks a month, that's that's worth it. I'm still shocked that they do not have an incentive for YouTubers to push YouTube Red. I, I mean, it's been out for what, like a, a year now. Yeah, and you don't see any real marketing for it. I think I saw maybe one TV commercial ever for it. Yeah, you know, it's not advertised on. I don't see commercials on YouTube for it, really. Yeah. But it if they seems did to like be getting more popular though because when you know every month when I get paid for ad revenue uh my network splits out you know here's what you made on ad revenue here's what you made from YouTube red share cuz you know they share mm-hmm. the revenue from YouTube and it seems to get higher and higher every month so are more people using YouTube red but you're right in that yeah I never see them advertise it anywhere what if they went to YouTubers and say, "Hey, I'm Norm. You can save save a dollar a month and use code Gaming Historian if you sign up." If they did that, it's a great idea. I mean, what, like if they just did that, I mean, I think one of the reasons why they didn't mind dropping the PewDiePie show is they probably looked at the subscribers he got, and they're like, "Well, he didn't really push the needle with this show, so we don't care. It's not really worth our time." Yeah, you know. So, but what if they they got YouTubers to directly do that. I think that'd be big. I, maybe they're waiting for the infrastructure to grow more naturally first. I mean, it's not even in Europe yet. It's only in the you know the U.S. Yeah. So maybe they want to get get it all set so that we we can push this you know worldwide and do it like that. I don't know, but I think once you get to that point, that that's going to be like not game over, but that'll be sort of the point where okay, if I'm a YouTuber, I can promote it and I get something out of it. Then give me a reason yeah. to do that and, and protect yourself against this quote unquote war against YouTube. Where, you know, the advertisers, I think, rightfully have concerns about where their ads are being placed, their money. You know, you don't have to worry about that as much. So one of my ideas was let content creators with a certain threshold uh, create their own exclusive YouTube Red content. So you have your normal channel. And, hey, if you have YouTube Red, you can listen to my podcast that you can't normally listen to. You know, stuff like that. Um, well, yeah, people are, are using Patreon for that sometimes. We're saying just right. build it into the just YouTube infrastructure. In- integrate it into YouTube. Uh, as far as what you're talking about with the quote-unquote war on YouTubers in the mainstream media, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, let's talk about this because it's been bugging me. Um, the part about the advertisers withdrawing because their ads are playing on offensive videos or potentially offensive videos the issue i'm seeing is people are attacking the wall street journal for this but the real issue is youtube's broken ad system why are people criticizing youtube the wall street journal is just doing their job of reporting on an issue with arguably one of the top businesses in the world, which is what the Wall Street Journal is supposed to report on. Yeah, I think I think when when the PewDiePie thing happened with Wall Street Journal, you could say, well, why are they bothering to report on 
him doing anti-Semitic jokes. Well, it's like, yeah, he's the biggest YouTuber. It's kind of news. If you, if you don't even think that is news, it's certainly news that, like you said, uh, the way ads are displayed on, on YouTube is broken. And the right. fact that it is on awful, uh, you know, awful videos is terrible. And this was push come to shove. This is something that Google should have taken care of years ago. Yes. And they're behind. Exactly. They're just behind the times on it. And the reason that I think some of these YouTubers are upset is because they don't have content. All these YouTubers don't have content necessarily that's uh, ad friendly to begin with. And before it's like, oh, ads are thrown all over my content. I'm getting these premium ads. Or now if you have like Coca-Cola looking back, wait a second. I don't think I want my ad on this popular YouTuber. This is going to affect bottom lines. I don't have a problem with that, though, because you know what? Advertisers have the absolute right. It's their money to place ads where they deem fit. That's how it's always worked with, with radio and TV. Always right. worked that way. So right. why should why should YouTubers, the entertainers on YouTubers, that includes me, why should I be treated specially? Why should I be ignored? Right. The other thing is, according to that article, a lot of these advertisers, it's not like they completely withdrew from YouTube. A lot of them are only doing target specific ads now so as in coca-cola will choose which videos will play the coke ads um and maybe that's i don't understand i don't know how the money works with that but maybe that's where youtube makes a lot of their money so maybe it's not that big of a deal to youtube but well it's certainly a big deal if you have you know 50 advertisers pull out like major even temporarily they're losing ad revenue obviously they're definitely they're definitely losing ad revenue um but a lot of the companies said, like, okay, we just won't play our ads on random videos anymore. We'll choose what videos they want to play, which makes sense. Which is, again, a more traditional model. Yeah. But, again, that's where you're going to have – you're going to have some big YouTubers lose here. Sure. Uh, you're going to have some bigger YouTubers that put out uh, – I'm not saying it's right or wrong for their ads to be pulled entirely, but if an advertiser – a big advertiser sees their ads playing on a video that normally say, – say, say, say a producer – does a video and their average is a million or two million views, and they just have a, a high what they call in the biz a fill rate, meaning you know a lot of the views get filled with ads. If that drops to like half or a quarter of what it used to be, well, that's a quarter of the revenue you used to get. Yeah, and that and that's going to start happening, and it already has started to happen. Like people are saying, well, my videos have went down thirty percent, forty percent. I personally saw a teeny, maybe a teeny dip versus the views, but I really didn't see a big one. But I right. think I think that the target's going to be on those bigger YouTubers. Those are the ones that get the most views, obviously. So, so people like PewDiePie now they have a reason to be concerned. Even you know, before he gets dropped by Disney and he's off the Google preferred ads, but now the target's on you mm-hmm. because you might be getting five million, ten million views on videos, but if there's no ads playing in front of them, you know, Google's not going to give a shit about you anymore if you're not making them money. I mean, that's yeah. what it comes down to because their split is gone. Um, yeah. What what. What amazed me, um, and let's, I want to touch on the H3H3 debacle with the Wall Street Journal faking screenshots. Um, Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, with those, with those allegations, when they first came out with it, I will admit, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a huge allegation. Um, but then you take a so step H- back. But mm-hmm. The thing is, H3H3 has a history of uncovering some some scandals on YouTube. 
uh, like the, the Counter Strike Counter Strike Counter Strike uh, skins. One where people were making up videos saying, "Oh, I they own the company. This is the scummiest thing ever." I remember you even saying, "This is the scummiest thing I've ever seen." Where you own this the the, the Counter Strike skin trading and betting site, and you're doing a pretend video winning the skins. It's just right. highly unethical and immoral. Right. And he helped uncover stuff like that, or help come down on um, you know, like I think I, the Fine Brothers, and they're trying to copyright a genre of videos you know right just stuff like that where it's disgusting but th- in this case let's just back up what he did he made uh, a claim that the wall street journal doctored uh photos to show that an offensive video was having coke as displayed when he claimed they were made up images in order to, to get coke to back out so he basically claimed that the wall street journal was engineering uh advertisers to pull out the money from youtube which is a huge allegation like right, gigantic, and that's and that's what I said on Twitter. I said this is a very significant scandal and lawsuit if it's actually true, uh, and it would be because the Wall Street Journal is one of the most respected publications in the world. I mean, they have like what forty Pulitzer prizes. I mean, been around since eighteen ninety or so. Right. Know? So the idea of them faking screenshots to get advertisers to pull ads from YouTube is like crazy. But, you know, the evidence that H3H3 put forward, it made sense until you think you come up with that loophole of if the video was claimed by a copyright holder, ads are going to play on it, and all the money goes to the copyright holder. That's YouTube's been like that for years. And then if you click on your video, you'll see your ad revenue be zero because you're not making money anymore, but right, the copyright claimer isn't. I have a few so videos where... like that. And so it turns out that, hey, Wall Street Journal said, no, this is these screenshots are from these two days in March. This is not old. This is not made up. And then H3H3, had a, he had to move the goalpost and he had to back up because what he did could potentially, hey, Wall Street Journal wanted to go after him. They could have, like legally. They really could have. He's lucky, I think, at this point. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a <laughs> quite an allegation. But that's what I mean about YouTubers then. He makes mainstream news for the wrong reasons at that point, and then it's like not that we're lumped in. We're like, oh shit, we got to deal with the fallout potentially yeah. uh, of this. We're seeing as like, oh, we're the biggest YouTubers now are getting into for all the wrong reasons. We're seeing the big YouTubers <laughs> get you know get covered, and people's like, oh, there's this war going on. But my problem with this quote unquote war is this: the audiences for YouTubers and Wall Street Journal are entirely different. Right, they're entirely different demographics. They're they do entirely different work. It's not like People that are on YouTube are then automatically going to go on the Wall Street Journal the next second and, and look for the similar content. They're, they're not going to go from one to the other. It's not like Wall Street Journal is going to take potential business if YouTube uh, goes under or if YouTube gets damaged. It's not like the Wall Street Journal is going to gain more money in the long term. Yes, they get clicks on their articles, but do you think that that's going to be significant enough for them to try to go to war with the huge company? Like right. on purpose or to fake sc- – you imagine the lawsuit if Google founds out that, oh, they, they fake news in order to get big advertisers leave. That they that would be insane. Google's well, not this small company. And here's the other thing. If what the Wall Street Journal reported on was false, YouTube would know right away and they would come mm-hmm. out right away and say these are false allegations. And or YouTube Coca- didn't say anything. <laughs> or you think you think a giant company like Coca-Cola wouldn't know where their marketing dollars was going towards? Yeah. You don't think they would know immediately and check the records and say, okay, they go, hey, Google, is what this, is this person saying? Is this true? 
And they could be like, oh, no, it wasn't true. Or, no, yes, it was. Like, right. They would, is, they would talk not, to YouTube before they, they would withdraw talk. their account. So this is what I mean in terms of we're in this sort of weird state right now where you have these big YouTubers. I don't want to say always acting irresponsibly, but if they do, like in this case, there are ramifications, I think, to all of us on a small level. It does reverberate. Or it's like, okay, uh... Everyone's be looking at us now, maybe with a, a magnifying glass a little more. But that's unfortunate, but it is what it is, you know. Yeah, so as YouTube gets more popular, this is what's going to happen. So I'm not saying we got to unionize uh, on YouTube or have or have <laughs> reps, but hey, Major League Baseball, you know, if, all these all these sports uh, associations, the teams have reps. You know, someone that speaks for them. We're going to get to that point. Where we're going to have to have YouTube reps that come out and like give official statements to like the Wall Street Journal. We're sure. like, we're getting to that. We're getting to that point. Yeah. Because right now you have like the entertainment on YouTube is just splintered into a thousand MCMs and millions of individuals where yeah. it's like there isn't like uh, spokespeople. There isn't like a, s- a solidified message. These bigger YouTubers don't represent me. They don't represent you necessarily, but they pretend that they're speaking for us. That's yeah. what I get bothered by. it. And yeah. for, for some issues that may be correct, what they're doing. But if there's something that I don't agree with or if they fuck up, they definitely don't speak for me at that point. Yeah. there's There seems to be a, a, a strange paranoia with the mainstream media attacking YouTubers. And I guess I just don't, I don't see it. Because it's not a zero-sum game. Again, it's not like whatever YouTube loses, the mainstream media gains. Uh, if I go on um, CNN.com, I don't see uh, gameplay. I don't see let's play videos on there. You know, I don't see gaming historian videos popping up on 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 uh, MSNBC anytime soon. So it's not like they're going to take over the business net. They're not going to get the advertisers automatically that Google loses. That's not how it works. Yeah, it doesn't work that at all. Blitzer is not going to do a let's play. Yeah, we, you're going to see Wolf Blitzer come out and, he, and he's got his chairs going to be one of those rocket gaming chairs. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's to be, he's, hey, kids, what's up? Today we're playing, you know, <laughs> League of Legends with Don Lemon. You know, no, it's not. So that's why I, I, I see the need to be protectionist about your community. But I think there's also this romance with, uh, quote unquote, culture wars and conflict. And it seems like it's always something that it's easy to say we're at war with someone, especially if the other side isn't going to fight back. The Wall right. Street Journal is not going to put out a, a, a tweet or a three-minute video bashing H3H3. No. You know, so it's not even like an even sort of playing field when it comes to the responses. Right. They, they, the Wall Street Journal put out their quick statement, and that's it. And that's all they're going to be done with it. Yeah. You know, whether or not there's a lawsuit, that's something else, but that's it. The Wall Street Journal has moved on from that story, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Until they come after but, you, they're going to come after you, Norm. They're going to come after me and everyone else. Say they, <laughs> they, they are going to come after my Norma Gattari videos. <laughs> um, but the other, the other argument I keep seeing is, you know, that graph I told you about earlier with the, you know, we asked a thousand teenagers what their favorite brand is, and YouTube was the number one brand, and I think Wall Street Journal was in like last place <laughs> in that graph. But here's the thing, like, they're asking teenagers. Teenagers don't read the Wall Street Journal, as far as I know. They don't read newspapers. Yeah, they don't read newspapers at all. Um, and all the people calling to boycott Wall Street Journal, I guarantee, 
don't read the Wall Street Journal or are subscribed to the Wall Street Journal. Or knew what it was before these stories came out right. last month. Right. So it's just it's just silly. All of it is just silly to me. I think we're too old and not popular enough. If we had millions of viewers, we can come out and, and talk about the drama, about this war that's going on. Uh, <laughs> Are, are people going to come after us because we seem neutral in this? We don't think there's something r- really happening, and then be like, "Oh, you guys, you guys are sellouts. You're on mainstream media side." I mean, you're going to get that probably, but I think you have to take a breath, take a step back, and say, "And say, okay, what's what's actually happening here?" Right, and I think that's that's the lesson that we can learn from the H three H three thing. You see what's going on. Take a step back, look at everything, and form a, you know, form a better opinion. Then don't just like. Start taking your pitchfork out. Look at the players involved. Look at who actually has something to gain by doing that. Look what the Wall Street Journal. What would the Wall Street Journal really have to gain <laughs> by faking screenshots and opening themselves up to a huge liability that could potentially do them massive harm or put them under from a company like Google? You know, yeah. like that's what you have to look at. Versus, we're just doing a story we think is important, and it was important because. Google made those changes, lickety frickin' split. Yeah. You know, within a week and a half, they're like, oh, we, we kind of figured this out. We kind of yep. know what we can do now to give advertisers control yep. over their ads, which I was like, that didn't exist before. So I'm spending a, a quarter million dollars on ads this month. I can't see where my videos are going or really monitor or right. ads or really monitor where my ads are going. That's insane to me. Yeah. So I'm not saying yeah. I'm on the big business's side, but I'm on the side of common sense when it comes to business because at the end of the day, if I don't support the businesses advertising on YouTube in some aspect, YouTube dies, and and the ad revenue dies for everyone. I don't think yeah. people get that. Yeah. That these advertisers pulling out is actually good in the long run if it gets fixed. It gives more confidence to come back to YouTube and spend more money if they're confident that their money of their ads is going to where they think it's going and not to some awful video they don't agree with. Yes. I, I said this on Twitter when it happened, but when you hear hoof steps, think of horses and not zebras. <laughs> and then, and that's a pretty good good lesson to learn. Yeah. So uh, w- let's let's go a little levity here. We were we were roommates last year, uh, four or five conventions. It was a, it was a pretty heavy convention schedule. Well, yeah. first off, what do you what do you uh, you're going to more and more conventions uh, as yeah. I did last year. I think I did thirteen last year. What are you? What have you? What are you seeing from even the conventions of last year versus like four or five years ago? Say a Magfest 2010. How have you seen it, the retro video game craze change, or have you noticed any shifts happening? Well, there's definitely more people going to these conventions. Um, you look at a convention like Magfest, which four or five years ago was in the, you know, maybe the small lobby of a hotel, and now it basically takes over an entire convention center um i don't even go to magfest anymore i mean it's it's insane the amount of people that go there like twenty five thousand people 20 yeah, 000. It's, and it's four days uh it's crazy portland retro gaming expo that's the, the one i always talk about because i was there in 2010 i was the really the first quote-unquote internet guest right there it was me yeah and we're talking maybe 300 people 400 people and now you're talking 8,000, maybe more? Yeah. Yeah. Every year it's like 30%, 40% growth every year, year over year for six years. Yeah. It's insane. Yep. So you're, you're definitely seeing more people, which shows that the retro gaming community is growing. Um, you see, well, obviously we're seeing prices go up a ton with games. 
There's um, a oh, we can get into that too. I think there's multiple reasons why, but yeah, it's um, our fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I it's definitely YouTubers' fault. The prices are going up. Uh, but the other thing I'm seeing, actually, last year I saw it a lot. People unloading their collections at these conventions. Yes. Uh huh. So, I wonder what that means. That's does it mean a crash, or maybe there's a fad that's already you know happened? Possibly. Um, well, I always think is interesting that no one talks about the fact of, and me and Ian discussed this after Portland last year. Is one of the reasons game prices have gone up, um, is because of the the glut of new sellers trying to get it and make a buck. Sure. So that artificially raises the price because then you are, if you're looking to flip the game, that means if you know you want to make a profit off it, you're, you're, you are more likely to spend more money to get that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, ver- and then it, it adds more buyers into the pool, not the gene pool, the pool of potential <laughs> buyers. Yes. <laughs> and at that point, the prices go up. But then what happens, though, is what Ian and I saw at Portland last year. When you have all these sellers that have all these rare games, and you have less buyers now that want those rare games, what happens? What happens when you have more buyers that have these games versus, excuse me, more sellers own the games versus buyers that are really interested in them at this point? Prices uh, we're go seeing, down. We're, we're seeing that. I'm not saying that's why buyer, uh, collectors are getting rid of their games, but maybe we're seeing a flattening of prices in certain right. areas. Maybe we are. I don't plateau. track the price... I don't I don't see it as much anymore. But there was one game in particular. Ian said Earthbounds did not move at all at Portland. He said they were priced. Uh, he thought eh, reasonably, and he didn't see anyone buying them. Mm-hmm. That and that's a, and that's Earthbound. That's a game that people want to get Earthbound. You know, yeah. um, that's also a game that sold a decent amount. You know, and so it's like, all right, well, are we going to see that hundred dollar contract on NES? Probably not. We're going to get no. to the point where it's going to get unreasonable and probably shoot back down a little bit. I think right. we're we're just about at that point. For little Samson, I never thought I'd say, "Well, it's gonna be a thousand dollars." Now it's a thousand. Will we see two thousand, or we're gonna see it kind of trickle back down? I saw Wild Guns drop in value. You know, mm-hmm. Wild Guns is like two forty, two fifty. Now it's under two hundred, and they re-release it. Oh, what was it? They released it on um, was it Xbox Arcade or uh, they did the the, the remake? Yeah, uh, PS PS Four Wild Guns Reloaded. PS Four. So. You know, there's factors involved here. It's it's hard to say, but why, why do you think that some collectors are dropping, you know, are getting out now? Oh, there's there's a variety of reasons. Um, some people maybe got into collecting for the wrong reasons and kind of realized, okay, this isn't speculating. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some people that are just in it for the money. There's um, there's a fear. I I talked to one guy unloading this collection in Syracuse last year. He was uh, afraid of bit rot. He was unloading his collection because of bit rot. So he said, um, let, me, let me get rid of it car- now before the cartridges, you know, rot up and die, and then they're unusable. Wow. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I guess he may say that for a PS1 game, but uh, <laughs> but that's for a cartridge? I, I think you got to be around for a while more for, the, for that to really start a happening. A long time. Yeah, there's there's a... Especially if you hey. take care of your games. If you take care of them, the, the idea of bit rot is... Uh, seems rare or like unfounded that you that it would happen that soon that you have to unload your collection you know i mean i know electronics their bit rod is a thing but what do you think even for even for disc games we still haven't seen it be a problem yet right and they're more susceptible if you leave them out in the sun or just like in a 
you know, the temperature wise, the room's bad, or there's like humidity. There's all sorts of like factors with bit rot and disk rot and whatnot. Um, let's see. Another reason people are unloading, you know, there, there's a big, uh, there's a big uh, movement of like minimalism right now. Maybe people are just oh. like, I don't want to own a lot. So tiny house, tiny house, tiny house. <laughs> they, they pay like $500 a square foot for their house. Well, do they really, <laughs> is that what they go for? I, I actually, I, you know, the tiny house craze fascinates me. Um, I'm not a fan of it, but I did learn that, uh, tiny house buyers pay more per square foot than a average home. Oh, of course, because I'm sure that's like you have to have it made specially for the most part, right? Right. So that it's that's a cost built. incurred. Yeah, and it ends up being more. You know, you're you basically paid more for your house than than the average home buyer. Yeah, because <laughs> pr- price per square foot, you paid an insane amount. But, but you but, see that being a lifestyle choice. Now people want to have as little as possible, and that also means video games. Sure. I mean, I. I even see it in myself, like, okay, I don't need to own every video game ever made. I, I should own what I enjoy playing and what I, you know, what's nostalgic to me. So, maybe, I mean, every time I go to a convention, I I sell some extra games that maybe I, don't, I didn't like or I just don't want to play anymore. So, maybe that's another reason. I think there's a ton of reasons why someone would unload their collection. I'm getting to the point where, well, I want to move. And if I move, it's like, do I really want to? It was bad enough, and I have like my collection is like probably four times or five times the size it was in New Jersey. But that was a bitch just to get that stuff all packed up and move. Yeah. What do I do now? Do I really want to move three hundred Genesis games, two hundred of which I'll never probably play in my life? You know, like is that something I really want to do? Right. And that's that's the conundrum people are facing. And I'm not saying that. Owning a lot of games is bad because some people find joy in owning a large collection of video games. Well, like talking with Billy from the Game Chasers. He likes owning all those games because he looks at it like a library. I have a library yes. of games and I can play whatever I want. And that's great because that makes him happy. Um, and some people, you know, like me, we just we want to own just what we want to play or what we enjoy. So it's really up to you, the individual. Well, but I, you I, have definitely the see, I definitely see moving as a big factor of why you would want to downsize because I've sure. moved a few times and carrying all those games sucks. I think the one why po- you own them all. We haven't talked about preservation that much, but that's what I think collecting for a lot of collectors have shifted shifted into preservation. Um, so a bigger collector will be more likely to spend the money to procure something that needs to be preserved. Right. So I think that's important. So a collector like me or Frank Cifaldi with his prototypes or Steve Lynn, super collectors, will be more likely to go out there, make sure that the these pieces get into a, a someone's hands that wants to keep it, maybe dump the ROM or just document what they have. But I think we're at the point now where, not that everything's been found that like could be found, but even the bigger collectors see like, okay, I have most of the stuff I'll ever want. Let's move beyond just the materialistic side and more to going back to the historical side. Or uh, let's think about what am I going to do? How is this going to matter to people 30 or 40 years from now? Like right. I think that's where we've shifted the past probably three years or so. And yeah. now you have like the, the Museum of Play. You have the National Video Game History Museum that Joe Santulli mm-hmm. and friends uh, helps run. Uh, you have was it GameHistory.org that Frank Cifaldi started yes. uh, recently. You have all these 
other outlets now where collectors can either help contribute to or help at least see that, wow, what I'm doing is now helping mark, like, you know, before, hey, before the, you know, 40 years ago, there probably was no, like, uh, radio and TV museum 40, 50 years ago. Like, why do you need one? Sure. It's too young. But now you have these things popping up for, you know, the, the probably the newest entertainment medium, if you don't count, like, online media, is video games. Yeah. And uh, that's... That's kind of where I hope that my show goes. Like, I hope I can help with that preservation aspect. And it's also part of another reason why I don't own a huge collection because, you know, all of owning a bunch of stuff, yeah, you want to kind of help contribute to a cause like the Video Game History Foundation. Like, if I came across a super rare game, like, sure, I could probably make a video about it, but afterward, Maybe I'll donate it to the Video Game History Foundation. Maybe I'll give it to the National Video Game Museum. Especially if it's like a one-of-a-kind item. Let other people look at Mash. it and see it and enjoy it, you know? I'm actually not too familiar with the... Uh... Oh, that's GameHistory.org is the Video Game History Foundation. Video Game History Foundation. It's GameHistory.org. I'm calling it by its, by its <laughs> website name. And actually... But that, um, no, that's... Uh, they Yesterday, Frank Cifaldi released, like ton like i can't remember how many 15 years of media assets that's incredible yeah it's incredible that he 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 foresaw the need to get like okay what did they show at freaking e399 you know like what what are the what are these assets from marketing from like way back like when you think about it that stuff's all gone like once they show it yeah. originally like where are you going to see that stuff again or where are they going to demo video stuff like that like it's it's important stuff yeah all of it was on like burned cds stuff that you would usually probably throw away at your job like once the event's done you're like okay this is great and you throw it away he kept all of them and now he's uploaded them and now you can browse them all and people are appreciating it. like the the one that blew my mind the most was the rayman there's a screenshot of rayman 2 like a, a prototype beta of, of Rayman 2, the only known screenshot is this super blurry magazine scan, and he found the media asset, and now there's a high-quality picture of what Rayman 2 was going to look like. It's just it's, oh, yeah, it's incredible. I'm looking at Let's see. He did a pre-release screenshot of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. He uh, got some Mother 3 when it was a Nintendo 64 game, uh, some Mario Party uh, concept so- art. Yeah, so we're talking like the original source image versus it being scanned later or downloaded right. where you you lost all that detail of that image. Yes. He's, he's comparing on the right and left, and yeah, it's like the pixel JPEG, like jagged edges and artifacts versus on the right where it's all clean stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's great. It's What they're doing is phenomenal, and I, I encourage people to uh, contribute to their Patreon. Definitely. I'm, I'm a proud patron of the Video Game History Foundation. Uh, was, there's also an interview that, that this is posted on the page of interview will we'll write a PR interview that would have been, you know, potentially lost. Yes. You know, from like 1998 or something. Uh, 99, 99. You know, so, so this is why this is important. And that that's where I'm leaning towards now. It's like, I have an NWC gold cart that's sitting in a bank vault. What value is that doing right now versus I donate it? Or let's or loan it out to a, a museum that at least can put it on display and people can at least get something out of it, just to see right. it. You know, like that's where I'm at. I have other rare stuff here that, like, <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing with it? Like, like it's just sitting here. Only I'm seeing, or or if it shows up in an NES Punk video, or if I happen to do a video on something that's rare, why not? Like that that makes sense. Yeah. But 
We're getting there. Well, you're you're a little bit younger than me. You're you're in your thirties now, I think, almost officially. Uh, almost. Twenty twenty nine, and the a half of my twenties. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have like two more months of being in my twenties. All right, you're you're getting there. All right, no. you're officially gonna be old. Yeah. I keep forgetting how you, you carry yourself like like an older gent. It's it's weird. <laughs> be, it's, it's weird because when I first started on YouTube, I was like one of the younger ones. Uh, I was twenty years old when I started on YouTube. And now, you know, as YouTube has evolved, I'm like one of the older guys on YouTube. Is that scary? And I'm older than you. I'm like eight years older than you. <laughs> it's not scary. Old. It's just it's just weird to think about. Like, uh, I remember we joked about one time, like bringing back the old YouTube, like 240p YouTube, like <laughs> no more HD, like back back when when we were the young guns. Uh, well, I think when I started, it was a 360. You can get 360 on there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or 480. Remember, it was big. It was big when it went to HD. Finally, like four years ago. Yeah. Or was it 2012 or whatever it was or 13? It was like, wow, it's now HD. You're like, oh my god, mm-hmm. you know. They had, had to catch up and they have, they have 4K. They have 4K now. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. I don't see the need for it ever, but especially no. not on YouTube. But. Yeah. The want. sixty frames, per, the sixty frames thing still freaks me out. I don't like seeing, like, don't ever do a, a gaming historian at sixty frames. It just freaks me out. It's too real. When I, <laughs> I, I have done videos in sixty frames, but uh, only for game footage. When I'm on camera, sure. that's kept at thirty frames a second because, yeah, it does look weird. It's like you're watching not, a sporting event. Yeah, but it's like it does even look how we look at stuff in reality. It's like. You know what I mean? It's like it's playing a trick with your mind. It's like yeah. giving you more frames, and like in real life, we're moving at like thirty frames a second. It seems like right. Right. It's not as like it's not like seeing oh every little tiny increment. Like you know? yeah, yeah. It's kind of uh, freaky. They tried that with the I think with the Hobbit movies. They did it like forty eight frames. They cut. They split the difference. Oh so. man, that was so weird. I, I've like seen watching... I've seen that. Yeah, it, it, it made like, it. Yeah, it made the viewing experience very strange. It just took you out of it. You're like, "Ooh, I'd rather watch a silent yeah. film." Yeah, <laughs> it was it was it was it was weird. 24 frames is is good for movies. Let's keep it that way. So, where do you see the future? I hate to say the future of YouTube. YouTube is over. Um, do you see there coming back to a point where longer form videos like yourself could become more of the mainstream or you think it's always going to be the young young man's and young viewers world where, you know, quick style videos uh less edited less polished videos is always going to be the norm on youtube you're you're killing it with the norm puns today i, I skipped uh, a couple <laughs> i i think i think you're seeing a shift in youtube um and this has been beneficial for me but you're seeing longer form videos getting more attention on youtube and maybe youtube promoting them a little more because mm-hmm. as you know, people shift from cable to YouTube, they're looking for long-form entertainment to replace their TV shows and movies. And so some of the longer-form content is doing a lot better on YouTube. Um, but I still think there's always going to be a place for the daily vloggers and whatnot, because that's kind of what YouTube was born in. I mean, there's always that's always going to exist on YouTube. So you're not going to start doing the uh, makeup uh, videos yet? The other makeup videos. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll do a Q and A every well, week. Well, it'll be interesting to see how much business Amazon can do since now Amazon's promoting independent 
stuff to be uploaded there. And maybe that can be like, oh, the video game years floundered on YouTube, but maybe on Amazon Prime, you know, or people will watch it, or on Amazon Video, people will say, oh, this is more the scene there. This is closer to like a Hulu experience or, uh, yeah. you know, so maybe maybe you can look into that norm. Maybe you can upload it there and see how it does. I don't know. Um, I, it's tough because I look at my stuff and I'm like, this is, I think this is good for YouTube. But if I were to see my show on like Amazon Prime or Netflix, I'd be I'd be like, this is terrible for Amazon Prime and Netflix. But that's just my own uh, self doubt and uh, you know low self esteem talking. Sure, I I don't know. Um, I I mean, there's some people making great stuff on YouTube right now that I think could definitely be on Netflix. Um. So yeah, maybe maybe we maybe we head that way. I think if I had All a big right. if I had a bigger budget, I would definitely do some cooler stuff. I have a I'm very low budget. <laughs> what, what what could you do with a bigger budget? Could you just get more like hard to find stuff or? Um, my my dream is to actually fly and talk to people that were involved in this. So get on camera interviews with some of these people. You know? So you would you would just go to Japan maybe or you or sure. talk to even locally. Yeah, Lo- locally Japan, California, anywhere. Um, Me- Danny O'Dwyer, who does the No Clip, he does a series called No Clip. Uh, he used to work at GameSpot. Um, he gets like he he does stuff that I'd love to do. So like he'll go and interview John Romero, who lives in Ireland, and he did a full documentary about him. Um, like 20, 30 minutes, but he gets like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a month on Patreon. So he's got the budget to do something like that. Wow. Okay. Um, but I get, you know, I, I get $1,300 a month on Patreon. So like, it's not in the budget for me to fly to Ireland and interview John Romero. Like I can email John Romero. Why don't you do it for the, the do it for the fun of it. What happened to YouTube? <laughs> yeah. I have to, you know, I have to feed my family and <laughs> I have bills to pay, but Pay your mortgage, right? Yeah, and I and I'm not I'm not saying that like oh give me more money. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like I always strive to make my show better. And so if I had the budget, yeah, there's so much more I could do with gaming historian. You know. Sure. Well, you're close to the. This is a plug for your Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Gaming Historian. You're close to the 1500 mark, which means you can get a uh, upgrade to a soundproofing materials for your. <laughs> yeah, actually. Uh... Uh, I'm in my closet right now, and uh, I'm surrounded by like old blankets. So, some soundproofing on these walls would be nice. But I gotta say, uh, for here's a budget YouTube trick: old blankets work pretty well for soundproofing. Huh? Just uh, just all around you, so you're like in a yep. I got fort, I got like, I got, qu- I got fort. quilts and clothes all in front of me. So like when I speak, it doesn't echo everywhere in the room. Oh sure, yeah. All right. Well, you're, you're going to get the, that little know, budget too. Actually, I think Matt Pat from Game Theory still does that. He records in a closet with, with blankets. That's really surprising, being that he has a whole team to help him. That's kind of, <laughs> you know, oh, that's what he surprising. claims. That's how he claims he records his narration. But <laughs> that's just a theory. Yes, that's just a theory. <laughs> we'll, we'll do our Pat and Norm uh, convention uh, adventure series. That'll come directly to Patreon. Let's let's get the levity. So you spent a lot of time with me versus any other YouTuber probably throughout the year, being that we, we roomed together a lot, and we and we did our book deal. Yeah, we did a book deal. 
where you, where you gave me a slightly better than average review for, for the money. Um, what is something you can tell the audience about me that they would not know uh, based upon your time with me? Um, you or something are that's a, is, you are a food snob. I'm a food snob. <laughs> but, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing uh, because I, I, I consider myself a little bit of a food snob. Um, but like you appreciate good food, like you'll go out of your way to eat at a, a good restaurant. Like you'll look for a restaurant rather than just, just like go to McDonald's. Se- I won't just settle for like Jack in the Box. Yeah, that's a good McDonald's. word. You don't settle for your food unless it's an emergency. Yeah. I will seek out the nearest Cheddar's. <laughs> yeah, <if it's> around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean that that is uh, that is one perk of going to these conventions together because. Uh, I think, uh, especially Billy and Jay, more so Jay of Game Chasers, they are they are great guys to hang out with. But uh, they love fast food. I love Jay. He has the worst palate of any man <laughs> I've ever known. He likes nothing but like fast food and burgers. Like, he won't even try something outside of like, all right, Murica food. Like, what can I get? Like sushi? No. <laughs> Fish? No. You know, we'll even do like probably Chinese food. No, just, just nothing. Just give me a burger, and that's it. Or give me, you know. Yeah, I, he he's taken me to some good restaurants uh, in Arlington where he lives, uh, but like he will he will not hesitate to just like hit up the McDonald's drive-through, and I'm just like, I I don't I just don't like McDonald's. So that's um, good for like emergency. Like that's that's fine. Like if, it's, I, if I'm it's fine. really hungry, yeah. you're. Sure. But not like if I'm like had a, a long work day and I want to like relax and have a good meal with someone, I'm not going to fast food. I'm not going to your coveted Whataburger. I'm not going to Now I I will defend Whataburger. I do really like I do I will, really like Whataburger. I will um, never but, forget that drive to that restaurant. I'm like this is a fast food place. You drove me an hour to a fast food place. I couldn't believe it. But I I I do agree with you that like especially at conventions because they are long work days. Um, because usually we do panels and we meet fans at tables, so um, they can be very tiring days. Uh, they're a lot of fun, but you're exhausted at the end of the day. Um, so sitting down to eat a meal is is nice after a convention day. Oh, sure. It's just like you can unwind because those can, people. I remember people got on me because I said I mentioned in one of my videos that I'm exhausted from the doing like you know. I think at one point I did like eight conventions in like three months. And and people are like, well, well, that's not bad. You know, you're just sitting at a table. I'm like, well, there's a lot more to travel and you know and setting up. And I mean, I'm grateful I have the opportunity to do that, but it's still tiring. It's still taxing on you. Um, it's not sure. something where we're all oh, you're just going to sit down and just like just shoot the shit for like two hours, like we're doing now. That's not that's not what these conventions are. Yeah. Um, it is still a job in some aspects. You're you're meeting people that enjoy your work, which is great. But but you still have to prepare a panel. If you prepare panels, do your panel, you know, be there to talk to people, you know, and then go get off a Whataburger at the same time. It's, it's all, <laughs> it, it, but that's the, but that was the only thing you, you you could have embarrassed me so much. So that's the that's the only thing about me is that I have I have I'm a food snob, you know. You, I, man, I, that's I, it. <laughs> I am trying to think of something that people might not know about you, but leave the toilet seat up. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, you sing in the shower. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. It, it's it's funny because you're always like, uh, you know, I'm gonna get ready for the day. Cause like we we room together. 
they stick us in a hotel room together at these conventions. Um, and, uh, you know, you're a good roommate, Pat, but like when, when you get ready for the day, you're like, I'm going to take a shower and you're just like randomly sing. I don't even know what you're singing. You're just like <laughs> randomly singing these songs in the shower. And when, it's funny. One time you came out of the shower and I was like, what the hell were you singing there? And you were like, Oh, I was singing. Like you don't even realize you're doing it sometimes. It, it's just, uh, it's, you get the echo chamber. It's the opposite of the recording session. And you're like, Oh, this is good acoustic. I should belt out a tune. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, no, this, this was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a blast. It's, it's, um, it's always fun to talk shop. Uh, be ready for the hate because we support the the big businesses and the mainstream media um, attacking <laughs> us. That people we're, we're going to be Benedict Arnold's of YouTube. You know? Oh, jeez! No, no you, one you, said you like anything stay, like that. You like to stay away from drama for the most part. Yeah, I I like to to make my content and I I want people to enjoy it, and that's kind of. I try to stay out of all that stuff because, again, when when I when I see stuff like that on Wall Street Journal and they're like YouTubers are making inappropriate jokes, when I see that word YouTuber, I don't think of myself, so I don't take offense to it. And I don't know if that's sure. just me or what, but I don't know. Well, the other thing that we have to say, we we both are huge fans of Potato Gamer. Uh, we're just, <laughs> just getting enough credit. A Potato Gamer, the, next, the April year. Fool's joke that will never exist. Oh, it will at some point. I'm gonna. I, I, when it came a week away from April first this year, I totally forgot about. it. I was like, oh, I didn't bring it up this year again. What does it be? Four years in a row, we didn't do anything with it. <laughs> now, I, I did answer your question about Potato Gamer on Twitter. You did. You did answer. I the did. Questions. We worked. We worked yeah. it in. Yeah. I'll, I'll I still. Said... I'll still. I'll still record the theme song. I, I still have the lyrics somewhere. <laughs> I think I emailed you. I think I texted you the lyrics, so you definitely have the lyrics. Yeah. Just, just for context for your viewers. <laughs> on what potato gamer is because I'm sure a lot of them are confused. Yeah. Uh this was this was actually from the convention when I first met you and Joey. This was Classic Game Classic the Game in, Fest in Vegas. The is one it, the one in Vegas, 2012, it, the weekend it, of hell, as I like to call it. The Cheetah Men weekend. Yes. Yes. That was when I first met you guys and uh Not I did not have probably the best first impression. Uh, for that week. Yeah, that was, that was a rough weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to tell the story sometime of the uh, of the weight room at, yeah. at the hotel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but with Potato Gamer, I think we were... John was working on a video game years yes, episode. Yes, probably. He was... Forcing it out in the hotel room, yeah. He was rendering it out. He's like, how should I render it? And I made a, I made a joke to render it in Potato which is like really <laughs> low quality. Like it was just a, a meme term going around at the time, and so yeah, shot through potato. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of it's kind of where I, like the the concept of potato gamer was born. Like the worst video game we built review. Show we built it world. up as the worst video game review show with the worst quality hyper cam uh, footage. Right. Um. Or you see like unregistered hyper cam. Yeah. You know, rec- like dimly lit so you can't see it. Right, shooting shooting the gameplay on a TV with a camera, <laughs> just yep. like all the all the sort of like all the worst sort of tropes of video game reviews rolled into one. Yeah. But then we but we said, but what if you had an awesome theme song though? Yeah. What if so his I, intro I, I, was like <laughs> one of the best what, intros of any YouTuber? But then it just but then it just cut to just the worst video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Top ten hidden gem NES games and like Mario Three is on that list. Yeah. It's a that's hidden gem. <laughs> 
Yeah, stuff I, you didn't I, know about, like stuff you didn't know about video game crash. It made you feel like <laughs> yeah, just like terrible, terrible content. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that show has not uh, come to fruition yet. Not the way we would like to see it, but one day, one no. day. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, we should, you should put that as a Patreon call. Uh, if I get to $3,000, I will release Potato Gamer. Yes, we'll do yeah. that. All right, Norm, this was great. Where can people find you in your work? Find me at youtube.com slash historian on Twitter, at historian or uh, if you want to learn all all about it, just go to GameInHistorian.com. There you go, and I am uh, Patrick. Thanks, Norm. I will see you at the next convention in Norway. We're gonna That's be right. I'm very excited for that. I don't think we're rooming together, though, there. Uh, no, I think I'll, I'll be there. I'll there. be there with my wife. Oh, 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 I, I, I love your wife. I think I get along better with her than you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you do. <laughs> that's that's going to be great. Uh, yeah. That's a whole other story. That'll be a whole other story about the that restaurant with with Brent. What happened? <laughs> oh, that was a good time. That was a good time. See, that's something you could have told about me, but you, you, your chance is gone. All right, Norm. <laughs> Sa- save it for your tell-all book next time. All right, take yeah. it easy. All right, see ya. Thanks again to Norman Caruso for speaking to me this week. If you enjoyed the Not So Common podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or whatever you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. You can rate the podcast and leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media and let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support the Not So Common podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.